Be sure to tune into Immigration with Tamina Watson this and every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Immigration attorney Tamina Watson founded Watson Immigration Law here in Seattle and is a frequent speaker, author, and blogger who has appeared in Forbes, CNN, The Seattle Times, and much, much more. On her new radio show, Tamina will take all your questions live on air. Plus, she will discuss and provide insight into the latest immigration news and issues, as well as talk with notable personalities who have impacted U.S. immigration laws or are notable immigrants themselves. Check out her new show, Tuesdays at 10 a.m., Immigration, with Tamina Watson on Daisy 1250 a.m., radio that listens to you. Good morning, Seattle. This is Tamina with Tamina uh, at Desi, 12.50 a.m. Thank you so much for joining us this Tuesday morning. It is a little cool and cloudy outside, but it will be sunny and warm later on today in the 70s. Um, and tomorrow, I hear it's going to be in the 80s. So I hope you do have your sunscreen and stay in the shade. Today is a is a day where we will have some very, very important and informative information, particularly for our Desi community. So I hope you will stay tuned and I hope you will text and um, message all your friends to tune in who who are affected by the immigration backlog uh, problem that we have in this country. Um, and that has been ongoing for years. Um, if you have any questions or calls, our number at the studio is 844-301-1250. That's 844-301-1250. And if you wanted to email us, uh, don't do it now. Do it after the show. The email address is info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com. Now, if you're new to uh, the show, then just a little brief update on what we do here. The show is all about immigration. I know nothing else. So I love the opportunity to talk about immigration issues. So we have uh, updates on news, on laws, on cases, um, what's going on around the world. But also, um, I talk to people who are making a difference in immigration, whether it's a notable immigrant making an impact with the work that they're doing, or notable people making an impact on immigration law. And today's guest is somebody who is making huge impact on immigration law. But we'll come to that in a moment. In news updates, um, you know, it's interesting. Last week, um, the Democratic National um, nominee or almost nominee Hillary Clinton announced last week that she will be introducing immigration reform within the first hundred days of her office if she is elected. And um, her vice presidential pick, Tim Kaine, had also confirmed that in a Spanish-speaking um, rally last week as well. And, you know, immigration reform is, is so necessary. And you can see the difference between what was spoken about at the Republican convention um, and what happened yesterday at the Democratic National Convention where there was an 11-year-old uh, um, girl called Carla Ortiz who talked about um, her fears of what would happen to her if her parents were deported. Um, Congressman Gutierrez also talked about um, his immigration, immigrant um, heritage and why immigration reform is um, important. So the difference between the two national conventions are so stark where in one immigration was feared and yesterday and this entire week immigration and immigrants are going to be celebrated. So if you are a newly minted citizen, I cannot say this enough, please register to vote. Your vote is really, really important. 
If you have just tuned in to our show, uh, this is Immigration with Tamina on Desi 1250 AM. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you will um, stay tuned for the next half an hour. Today, also, we are on Facebook Live. Hi, Facebook viewers. Uh, we're trying out this for the second time, and thank you so much for all the viewers that joined us last week. We had almost 400 viewers, so that's really amazing. Thank you so much. I hope you will spread the word and continue to um, listen, listen to the show. Um, so today's guest, I am so, so honored and proud to have this wonderful guest. He is Robert Powell. Do we say Powell or Paul? Powell. And he is a friend and a mentor. He's answered many, many questions of mine over the years, and he is making waves uh, in immigration, not just today, but for the time that he's been practicing. Um, just a little bit about him before we start sp speaking with him. Robert Powell is a founding partner of Gibbs, Houston and Powell. Hin since 1983, he has successfully represented thousands of individuals and businesses in immigration cases. Robert has extensive experience in all aspects of immigration law as and is nationally known for his focus on immigration-related re litigation. He has been a faculty member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, AILA, Litigation Training Institute, and an adjunct professor professor of immigration law at the Seattle University of Law School of Law. He is a frequent speaker on immigration law at AILA national and regional conferences and symposiums and often serves as a legal advisor to non-profit organizations and advocacy groups on the issues of immigration. He is annually ranked as a super lawyer by Law and Politics magazine and I'm so proud to call him a mentor and a friend and I'm so glad you're here in person. This is wonderful. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Tamina. It's just wonderful to be here, too. Oh. I'm very glad to be here. Well, thank you. I have so much to talk about, but we're going to be short of time. So I'm sort of going to just dig in now. So the reason that uh, you're here, you, you could probably share many, many, many stories. But today's story is really about um, the case that has been in the news recently. Um, before, before I go into that, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about some of the cases you have litigated in the past, very briefly. Well, I began working um, way back in um, 1987, 1988, doing immigration work um, during the uh, when uh, the Reagan administration adopted the legalization program, and <coughs> uh, so we were involved from in that program um, in several class action lawsuits challenging the le that legalization program. What we thought were overly restrictive rules and regulations adopted by the Immigration Service, trying to make sure that as many people as possible, as many people that Congress really intended to get uh, status in the United States uh, did get that. Since uh, that time, uh, I've been handling immigration cases, uh, well, for the past, what, 25 years or so? Wow. And um, continue to uh, push for immigration reform and try to make sure that uh, people who are out there who need immigration benefits get the benefits that uh, Congress intends them to get. Well, wonderful. And I know listeners will be appreciative knowing that you were the one who were fighting in 1986 case because I, I know many people benefited from that. So thank you for doing that. And your work continues. So you were one of the leading attorneys in the high-profile case of Meta versus Department of State, which was also dubbed as hashtag VisaGate 2015. Um, please describe the, the background of the law of this case. The background of the law is very, very complicated. I don't know if there's a way to simplify it um, for listeners who don't understand it, but a lot of the listeners will actually be affected by this. 
It is very complicated. <coughs> I think that's part of the difficulty in getting the attention of the courts um, to focus on the issue and some of the problems in the case. I think at a very basic level, just to make sure your listeners understand, um, the problem arises out of the fact that there are many more people applying for um, permanent resident status for immigration visas uh, than are allocated by Congress. Uh, so, for example, let's just to, simp to oversimplify, um, you can imagine, let's say, that there are 10,000 people in a particular category who are applying for an immigrant visa for permanent resident status. And let's say during the year there are only 5,000 visas that Congress has made available. So, you know, that means um, if all of those visas are used up, then 5,000 people will be able to get uh, status. Um, and then there are 5,000 people who are waiting for the next year. In fact, the backlog is much more than just one year. Uh, the backlogs are, are in some categories, they can be 10 years or even longer than that. Um, theoretically, under the law, these visas are supposed to be allocated on a first-come, first-served basis. So, for example, um, the uh, picture would, would be, you know, when you first get in line, uh, you, pull a, you pull a ticket number, let's say you're number one, and then the next person is number two, and, and so on down the line. Then when the visas are allocated, they're supposed to be allocated in um, what they call priority date um, order or, you know, first, again, first come, first serve. So in our example, the first 5,000 people should be able to get uh, their permanent resident status and then the next 5,000 people would be waiting for the next year. Um, also very important in this, um, in, in this framework is when people are able to file an application for their permanent resident status. Now, the, the permanent resident process uh, is, uh, involves several steps and, uh, as we mentioned before, can be very lengthy. The, the last step, a very important step, is for people who are inside the United States is filing the application for permanent resident status. It's called an application to adjust status um, or form I-485. Um, and that is determined by the Immigration Service based on a calculation they make about how many people are likely to apply. So in our example, 5,000 people may be eligible to get uh, benefits, but um, if there are 10,000 people, you might let um, 6,000 people, for example, apply um, because you know that of the people who apply, some people are going to um, uh, uh, give up on the process for one reason or another. Some people may not be actually be eligible to apply. Some people may get uh, status a different way. So for a number of reasons, uh, you know, you, when you're, when you're um, planning for the year, you may plan, um, for example, let's let 6,000 people apply so that we make sure that we use all, all 5,000 visas that Congress has allocated. Now, the VisaGate problem <coughs> came up in um, last, last summer. In, um, the, other, the other thing to keep in mind is that each, um, each month, <coughs> excuse me, each month the Department of State will publish what's called a visa bulletin that will tell people, um, that will in effect um, tell people who's eligible to file their applications for the next month. Can I ask a quick question <coughs> in this? And we know that in this visa bulletin, the, the preference categories are also divided by the countries they come from. Which are the countries that have the longest waiting times? So right now in the employment categories, 
<coughs> excuse me, in the employment categories, we're looking at um, India and China as the countries that have the longest waiting times. And now in the employment category, you have EB1, which is people with no, um, extraordinary ability or multinational transfers. But the most predominantly used categories are uh, second preference and third preference. And those are the categories in which most of the high-skilled immigrants generally fall into. And for our listenership, the Desi community generally falls majority into the Indian category. So a lot of our listeners today will actually be from the EB2, EB3 categories from India. While we have listeners from other categories as well, those will be the most affected. And this is why this, what you are saying today, is absolutely invaluable. Yes, uh, correct. And in fact, the lawsuit, (coughs) excuse me, Although the lawsuit is not limited to the EB2, EB3 categories for people from China and India, um, it did uh, focus on (coughs) the stories of people in that category because that uh, is a predominant um, class, a predominant category in the litigation. Um, The litigation came about in in, um, September. The Visa Bulletin initially announced that um, uh, there were a category of people who would be eligible to file applications for permanent resident status. That's very important because that, um, when you file the application, you get certain benefits. Um, you get uh, an unrestricted work authorization card, for example, and the ability to travel outside the United States and return to the United States in the same status that you've, um, you had beforehand. Uh, so some very important benefits that you get by virtue of actually being able, being able to file the application. Um, that doesn't mean your application will be approved right then and there, but um, while the application is pending, while you're waiting for your interview, uh, you have these important rights. On September 5th, 2015, the Visa Bulletin announced that a certain category of individuals would be able to file their applications. In the, just for example, in the e- India EB2 category, employment uh, second preference category, uh, people, the, the visa bulletin said that people who had filed their application, who had pulled their ticket in a sense, or at least started the process um, on or before July 1st, 2011, uh, would be able to, to, uh, to file their applications. Uh, so that affected, you know, there's a, a large class of individuals then who, who um, would, were hoping to have the right to file their applications. That visa bulletin issued on September 5th told people uh, that they would be able to file beginning on um, the 1st of the next month. So October 1st, 2015, there was a category of people who, would, who, who should be eligible to file their applications. Um, however, um, so uh, maybe one other comment about that. In order to file the application, uh, that involves a fair amount of work. Quite often, people will hire a lawyer, pay um, you know, a thousand or a couple thousands of dollars. Uh, there's an, uh, a medical exam that needs to be done, other documentation that needs to be prepared <coughs> in order to file the application. So on September 5th, people were quite excited about being able to file the application for adjustment of status beginning on October 1st. Uh, the end of the month, however, September 25th, all of a sudden the Immigration or the Department of State said, well, you know what, we change our mind. Um, we're not going to let all these people file their applications. In fact, what we're going to do is adjust the, um, the priority date um, back to July 1st, 2009. So what that, in effect, meant was that only people who had filed their applications or started the process 
uh, before July 1st, 2009, would be eligible to file applications. So all of a sudden, there were in that particular category thousands of individuals who, who had taken steps to file their applications, hired lawyers, done their medical exams, and so on. All of a sudden, and, and were ready to file a couple days later on October 1st, on September 25th, uh, the uh, Department of State said, well, you know what, we're not going to let you file your applications after all. Uh, we think that that um, decision was uh, really made in an arbitrary and capricious manner. It was not made in a legal manner based on the legal standards for um, who's eligible to apply, uh, and uh, at least in part uh, motivated by some political pressure put on the Immigration Service and the Department of State, uh, some improper political pressure, uh, again, not based on the legal standards or the legal, re legal requirements uh, to change uh, the priority dates and to change the category of people who are eligible to apply. So then what happened after you filed the case? <coughs> well, um, after we filed the case, the government filed a motion to dismiss on jurisdictional grounds, arguing that the uh, court did not actually have jurisdiction or was not um, really authorized to hear the case. I have a quick question. So while the, the issue is a national issue, the case was filed in Washington State, is that right? That's correct. It was filed as a class action lawsuit, as a nationwide class action lawsuit. Got it. Um, the, um, so, so the uh, government filed a motion to dismiss, arguing that the court did not have jurisdiction. There were really, I, I, uh, we can think of two separate claims that were presented in the lawsuit. Um, the first, the one that we mentioned before, that we think that the uh, Immigration Service, the Department of State and um, USCIS, uh, the Immigration Service, had made this decision to adjust um, the, the priority dates in an improper or arbitrary and capricious manner. But underlying that um, is a requirement. So Congress has required the Department of State to maintain what are called waiting lists. So that means every, t every person who gets on the list who's, uh, th who wants to apply for permanent resident status should be recorded by uh, category and by country. Uh, that waiting list then is supposed to be used in determining who's, uh, who gets processed. Um, again, the first come, first serve basis in all of the different categories. Uh, the the uh, problem, we think, one of the problems here is that the Immigration Service has failed to maintain those statutorily required waiting lists. And that uh, gives rise to this problem. It's a problem that we've seen a couple times before where the Immigration Service adjusts the priority dates um, uh, perhaps for political, uh, because of political pressure or for other reasons, uh, that, um, but not for the ones that are required under the statute which again um, depend on maintaining proper and accurate waiting lists. Uh, we believe that uh, the Immigration Service just fails to maintain properly and cannot really account for all of the individuals who are in the queue. So basically the, the, the Department of State didn't do what they were supposed to do and you were challenging that. So then the, you made that case to the, to the judge and the judge basically said we don't, we don't agree with you. So then they dismissed it. Um, what was the date of that dismissal? Um, the date of the dismissal is, and I, um, sorry, I'm not going to yeah. give you the exact date, but it's approximately, um, approximately three months ago. Three months ago, and that must have caused so much disappointment to a lot of our listeners and people around the country. Is that right? Yes, uh, that was uh, uh, disheartening <coughs> to receive that. We think that was really um, uh, not a correct decision, and we have filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
uh, and uh, we believe that uh, we'll be able to successif successfully uh, convince the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that there are real legal issues here that the court has jurisdiction to hear and the court should hear. So uh, with the Ninth Circuit now, have they accepted the case? Uh, when do you find out? Yes, uh, so the process for the Ninth Circuit uh, appeals uh, can be quite slow. The case is accepted. It's pending before the Ninth Circuit. Uh, there will be a briefing that needs to be done. Uh, legal briefs need to be um, prepared and filed with the court. Uh, there will likely be oral argument in the, uh, before the Ninth Circuit and uh, then the wait for the Ninth Circuit decision. That process can take, I would say, um, at least a year, I would expect, before we hear a decision from the Ninth Circuit. Wow, a year. And in the meantime, this was based upon executive action that uh, President Obama had taken in November 2014. And next year, he will no longer be the president, even though I think a lot of people would like him to have another four years. So what does that mean for the next administration, regardless of who that is? Well, we think that there are steps that the new administration would be able to take to uh, help uh, solve the problem here. One of the problems uh, that, as I mentioned before, is this the um, maintaining the waiting lists. And just uh, so that there's, if, if those waiting lists are maintained accurately and that information is provi provided to the public, I think there will be a lot more transparency, a lot less uncertainty about who's eligible to apply and when people are eligible to apply and the problems that we see with the uh, retrogression. Uh, of the priority dates. And retrogression is a fancy word for the dates going backwards. And I say fancy word because I have to read n Fancy Nancy to my little child. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's the date going backwards that you mentioned. Um, so we don't have a lot of time left. So uh, just briefly, if the Ninth Circuit comes back with a decision that's not favorable to, to uh, the people that are affected, what are the hopes then? Well, there, um, even if the court does not have jurisdiction, even if the Ninth Circuit says that there's no jurisdiction here, the administration can definitely take steps uh, to help to rectify the problem. Uh, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, more um, uh, transparent accounting of who's on the waiting list, uh, making sure we have a full uh, and accurate accounting. Another thing, over the years, another problem with the failure to maintain these waiting lists is that over the years, um, e as I mentioned before, each year Congress allocates a certain number of visas. For the employment category, for example, the number is actually 140,000 visas available each year. Um, over the years, not all of those get used up. Um, we think part of the problem is because of those waiting lists. Um, uh, over the years, there are uh, more. There are more than 150,000 visas that have not been used up. That that could have been used up. People could have, uh, you know, so 150,000 people on the waiting list uh, could have had their status already um, if those visas were used. So, one thing we think the administration could do is use the unused uh, visas, visa numbers that uh, have not been used up over the past years. Um, if the administration decides not to do that uh, for whatever reason, uh, I, I should also mention that uh, that has been done in the past. Um, back in, some people might re remember, well, this is about 20, 25 years ago, the Silva program. In oh, which, I don't uh, know about that. Uh, mm -hmm. A similar problem came up uh, for visa numbers being used for Western Hemisphere countries. Uh, and actually, one solution uh, that was done then, the unused visa numbers from previous years were used uh, for those individuals. So we think that that could be done by the administration. Um, or alternatively, I mean, Congress could definitely make those visa numbers available to use. 
Uh, and then the other, uh, another solution is a legislative solution, uh, is, is just to address the problem that there are so many more people who are applying for and qualified for permanent resident status in the United States, but are not able to get that because the visa numbers, mm -hmm. Congress has just not made the visa numbers available. So mm -hmm. uh, another solution is a legislative one, just make more visa numbers available right. each year. Very good. Well, you know, um, you, I'm so glad you mentioned unused visas. I have written extensively about this issue. I've actually written to the White House many times saying, just do it. Um, so if anyone's interested in learning about what those issues are, you can go to my blog. You can Google unused visas to Mina Watson, and you'll see a lot of articles that will come up, particularly one in the Seattle Globalist. A shout out to Seattle Globalist for publishing my articles on a regular basis um, that really matter to the community. So, Bob, thank you so much for describing this very, very complicated issue. I know it's far too complicated to, to actually cover in 15 minutes, but you've done an amazing job, and I hope our listeners really appreciate all the work you're doing for free, can I tell them? You know, it's not lawyers bill by the minute, but you are doing this all for free, and people really need to understand that. Well, thank you so much, Tamina, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to be here. Of course. Well, thank you. Thank you, listeners and viewers, actually. I hope you enjoyed uh, watching this interview as well as listening to it. We don't have a lot of time, but if you want to learn more about this case, you can, you can go to Bob's website, perhaps, and um, maybe give a quick shout-out on the website. So the web website is GibbsHoustonPow.com, Gibbs, G-G-I-B-B-S, Houston, like the city, H-O-U-S-T-O-N, and Pow, my last name, P-A-U-W dot com. Well, thank you. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. We will talk about immigration next week again. And if you have questions, comments, feedback, uh, we would love to hear from you. Info at WatsonImmigrationLaw.com. And of course, if you need any help on immigration, WatsonImmigrationLaw.com is your first stop. Well, thank you so much. Take care. This is Tamina at Immigration with Tamina on Desi 1250 AM. Bye-bye for now.